Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 210 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the Showtime TV series Penny Dreadful, a gothic drama featuring classic characters from Victorian literature such as Dracula, Dorian Gray, and Dr. Frankenstein. The show recently concluded its third and final season, and this will involve spoilers for all three seasons, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Teresa DeLucci, making her sixth appearance on the show. She's written about Hannibal and Twin Peaks for Boing Boing, and she's also a frequent guest on Den of Geek's You Still Know Nothing Game of Thrones podcast. Her article, Five Reasons to Watch Penny Dreadful, recently appeared on Tor.com. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back. Then next up, we've got Christy Yant, who you may remember from our panel on Douglas Adams back in episode 42, and our panel on Women Destroy Science Fiction back in episode 112. She's the assistant editor of Lightspeed Magazine, and a writer and editor for the independent comics publisher Chimera Press. Her short fiction appears in books such as The Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy, and in magazines such as Analog and Science Fiction World. So, Christy, welcome to the show. Hey, Dave. Glad to be back. And also joining us today is Angela Watercutter, who you may remember from our panel on Jupiter Ascending back in episode 138. She's a writer and editor for Wired, where she writes about music, TV, and movies, but mostly movies. She's also the main person behind the scenes who helps get our posts up on Wired.com each week. And you should also go check out her recent articles, Penny Dreadful Might Be Blood-Drenched But It Ain't Horror, and five books you must read to truly get this season of Penny Dreadful. So, Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and so let's start off with Teresa. So, Teresa, around this time last year, we were getting ready for our Hannibal panel when it was announced that Hannibal had been canceled. And then this week, just as we were getting ready for our Penny Dreadful panel, it was announced that Penny Dreadful had been canceled. So I can't help feeling like it's a bit of a curse or something. But so why don't yeah, you just I tell think us? You should stop watching shows, <laughs> <laughs> or at least stop doing panels about them, right? <laughs> but but yes, yeah, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about overall? What's your reaction to this news that Penny Dreadful has been canceled? Oh, horribly shocked and disappointed. I mean, at least with Hannibal, I think the showrunners really knew that it was coming and had planned for it more. Um, I know. Uh, John Logan, the creator of Penny Dreadful, says this was always his design to have it end the way it did, but it really did not come across that way in the last two episodes. It felt very rushed. And I'm just bummed because Penny Dreadful became my favorite show since Hannibal, and where am I going to get my dark, sexy, blood-drenched, smart drama now? Hmm. Uh, how about Christy? What are your feelings about this turn of events? Oh, I, I second all of that. I was... I was so dismayed. I, I couldn't believe it. There are so many threads that they kicked off in even season one that they never even remotely came back to. And I have so many questions unanswered. And, and yeah, I feel the same way. Like the last two episodes were so disappointing to me. I just I was not at all happy with the way it wrapped up. And and uh, I'm just I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping against hope that some other network picks it up and that they get to move on. But I don't know the way they ended it. Who knows if they even can. Yeah, and so you're not buying this idea that that this was the plan all along? Oh no, not at all, not at all. There, there's just there are too many questions unanswered. Yeah. How about Angel? What do you think about all this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would co-sign everything that that everybody else said. I mean, I I appreciated like the fact that it was sort of dreamed up as a 
kind of three season arc and that like TV now never really has this ending. It either like gets canceled or kind of keeps meandering every time it gets renewed. And, you know, we end up with a lot of these sort of unanswered questions or whatever. Like I appreciated that they set out with this sort of arc in mind, but at the same time to everybody else's point, like it didn't actually end anything. You know what I mean? It just sort of kind of stopped happening. I, it was, there was no, no real resolution for me when I, when I saw it. And I, after I saw that, that ending, I thought, well, you know, I guess, I guess that's one way to do it, but then maybe <laughs> they could just reboot the show, you know, with a whole other series of these sort of gothic tales, you know, like you could have Penny Dreadful and have it be kind of a more serialized thing, but then they announced that it had just been canceled outright. And so I was like, well, I guess we don't even have that dream anymore. You know, like that was sort of a, that was the big disappointment, I think, for me was it. Was it that they were just ending this, you know, three season arc, but that they were kind of ending the concept, which I found to be quite disappointing. Right. And I know that you've been covering Penny Dreadful a little bit for Wired. Do you have any behind the scenes insight or do you know anything about the production or the people involved that might shed any light on this? Well, I mean, I, I interviewed John Logan about the third season before it had started, um, and, you know, he had mentioned in that conversation that, you know, even before they had launched season one, like when he was pitching the show, that it was going to be, he had envisioned a three season sort of run that ended with this kind of confrontation, you know, where, where Dracula shows up. Um, and, you know, when he said that, he was like, no, don't get me wrong. I would love to have season four and five. But like, you know, I look back on it now and I was like, maybe that was always kind of, you know, lip service or just like, you know, you don't want to, you know, kind of show your cards too early in that regard. So, I mean, maybe this always was the plan and this was always um, what, you know, what was going to happen. I mean, he's now working on the script for the next Alien movie, you know, like he, the, he has other things kind of going on, you know, like perhaps this is just, you know, sort of the way it was always meant to be, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I, I've been watching interviews with him all day and he mentioned any number of times what he would, you know, that he had ideas for season four and five and plans and right. things like that. So, yeah, it, it just adds to Teresa's point that I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like this was the plan all along to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it adds a certain weird expectation if they went into the third season press and all of the advertisements being like the final season, the final showdown. And I don't know if that would have helped or hindered. I think maybe he felt that it would hinder it to have people feel like, oh, bummer, it's the last season. Like, well, I guess I won't start watching it now. But they could have done it in a way with like the final showdown between, you know, Vanessa and Dracula, like play that up a little bit. You know, it could go both ways. So I could kind of see why he wouldn't want to have everyone know it was the final season. I feel with Hannibal, it was always such an on-the-bubble show and always at risk of getting canceled that I think Brian Fuller always ended every season like it could be the last because he felt like it genuinely could. Did you guys have any sense that this might that this show might get canceled because of the ratings? I mean, how how has the show been doing in the ratings? And was that was it not a surprise because of that? The the season three premiere was definitely a lot lower than the season two premiere and the season two finale. So viewership was going down and that does kind of tend to happen with most TV shows. But I guess even on cable, there's a certain level of expectation of viewership that I don't think the show was getting. And, you know, just 
culturally people talking about it. I didn't know many people who watched Penny Dreadful. It was nice to finally, you know, meet people. And I felt like I just started meeting people this year who were like, oh, yeah, I love Penny Dreadful. It's so great. Why is why is everyone talking about Game of Thrones? Or why is it airing the same time as Game of Thrones? That's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> There's literally everything is on Sunday night now. Like, you could put something on Thursday or Monday. It'd be nice. Outlander airs on Saturdays. You know, it's not in any danger. People watch TV differently now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, if, if I didn't have everything TiVo'd, I don't know which of those two shows I would pick. I mean, they are my two favorite. Well, no, I would pick Penny Dreadful. My husband would pick Game of Thrones. And then it would be fisticuffs every <laughs> Sunday, you know. Um, just seems like a tragic, tragic error. And and like you, I feel like I hadn't been hearing anybody talk about it either. And it sounds like you two have done some incredibly scholarly sort of like outreach to the people of, on this subject. And I just wrote my first newsletter on Penny Dreadful two weeks ago. Um encouraging people to see it right before they announced that they were canceling it and oh i i just i know i i'm like why didn't i start doing this sooner why wasn't i you know talking it up and, and letting people know but um again not everybody has a tivo so if it came down to game of thrones versus penny dreadful you know i don't know what would have happened well see i i blame myself because if we had done this panel a year ago probably millions of people would have watched the show and that, <laughs> that might have saved it all right well we're gonna blame you too then Dave. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, all right, well, well, Angela, you, you said in one of your articles that you wrote, you describe yourself as the resident Penny Dreadful evangelist. Could you talk a little bit about what your experiences have been as a... Yeah, I mean, it, the long and short of it was that, like, even back in season one, I was sort of, you know, ringing the bell in the halls, like, why aren't more people watching this show? Like, essentially, because, like, you want to have at least one per person to have that water cooler conversation with <laughs> when you when you come in on Monday. And so I slowly kind of brought a few people around uh to my cause but not nearly the the numbers and i mean it's it's sort of to that point of uh what we were talking about earlier like it, it was up against game of thrones come in monday morning into the wired office and everybody just wants to talk about game of thrones which is fine i want to too but i'm like guys you're already watching game of thrones you're already watching veep you're already watching silicon valley add on an extra hour watch penny dreadful i need somebody to talk to about this but um so yeah i was the i was the one kind of kind of championing it uh, from the beginning, because, you know, it is that, you know, like I wrote my piece, there is that thing of like, it didn't really always have a genre. I feel like people who liked maybe, you know, horror or fantasy or, you know, certain sort of, you know, kind of Baroque uh, storytelling or whatnot, weren't really sure if it was for them. And it kind of took a while to, you know, get people's attention and make them realize like, you know, there was there was kind of something for everybody on that show. Um, and so I kind of had to keep you know, poking at it as much as possible to get to get other folks in the office to to watch along. Mm -hmm. I mean, Teresa, did you, did you have any experience trying to get other people to watch the show? I did. You know, it took me a while to watch the show, too. I wasn't watching from season one. Uh, I would see the ads everywhere and be like, well, it looks interesting, possibly cheesy. <laughs> um, I didn't have showtime at the time, um, but now my parents do. So there are other means of watching it. Um, but yeah, I wasn't, I, I was not interested in watching it at first. And also because Sunday was so crowded. I'm like, when am I going to find time? 
Um, but once I finally did watch the first season, I was blown away. So then, yeah, it became a matter of going to all my horror-loving friends, particularly women, being like, no, you have to watch this show. Give it a chance. You'll love it. Dorian Gray sleeps with everybody. It's crazy. <laughs> You're going to love it. And they did. And now this week, they've all been really mad that I've got them watching another show that yet again got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Shaky fist. <laughs> yeah. So, well, when you say that, particularly women, what, why do you think that this show appeals particularly to women? Uh, Vanessa Ives. Well, I'd say it's about 70% Vanessa Ives, 30% Lily or Brona Croft. Yeah. Um, incredible performances. Like my number one reason would be uh, Eva Green as Vanessa Ives. Um, I wasn't very familiar with her outside of Casino Royale and The Dreamers, like her, her early work with Lars von Trier's. I was blown away by how physical her performance was with such a, you know, limitation of being like this presentation of a Victorian woman in a very rigid society. And here's this woman who is fighting for her soul. And it came across as so real and sympathetic and truly frightening, especially, you know, particular scenes in the first season with um, Madame Kali and the seance. I'm like, where is her Emmy? Yeah. You know, and then once we get into the whole Bride of Frankenstein thing, like that's obviously like incredibly tied into like women with agency, you know, and it's smart. It's really smartly done. You know, when Sansa Stark was disappointing me, you know, her <laughs> storyline was such a bummer last year. I was like, well, at least there's Lily. Lily's giving me everything I want. And there was such a there was such a great thing with those those two characters. I mean, particularly Vanessa Ives, I think that like because of you know the the subject matter, you know, going into this, everybody thought it was like going to be basically the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But except maybe it was, but they kind of took out the gentleman part. You know, I mean, it was all these great stories. You know, from um, you know from Dracula to uh, Frankenstein to the Picture of Dorian Gray, but the center of them this time was female. So you know, it was like it, that was sort of the the twist that got put on all these things. And I think that that kind of made all those stories that you had heard before so much more interesting and new and vibrant, you know? Even the supporting cast is, is full of women, right? And they, they took the doctor, doctor Seward. I can't even say the name Seward character, the doctor Seward character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who was male in the books, um, you know, cast a woman who, um, you know, Patty Lapone, I, I think is how you say it. She was fantastic in both roles. In season two, the Joan Clayton um, story arc had me, I mean, I just had this total feminist meltdown um, at the end of that arc. I just, I wept for like two hours. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I felt like um, every injustice ever perpetrated against women was kind of contained in this one arc in season two between Vanessa and the Joan Clayton character. And that there's something... Yeah, they, they've done a lot in bringing, even though it's still a male-dominated cast, I haven't actually done the numbers on this. I don't know whether they reached parity. I don't think they did, because the primary cast is still mostly male, apart from Vanessa and uh, uh, Lily slash Brona. Yeah. But um, but they, they went far in bringing in, um, you know, villains who are women and supporting characters who are women. And it's it's so refreshing. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it's interesting, Teresa, because you mentioned ha- that Hannibal was your favorite show, and then this became your favorite show. And I really see a lot of similarities between this and Hannibal, and just in like just in terms of the sumptuousness of it is the best word I can think to describe it. Yeah, I and, think that's a perfect word for it. And I, I didn't know anything about John Logan at all, um, you know, j- but just from watching the show, I felt fairly confident he was a gay man. And, um, you know, I watched uh, some interviews with him today and, and, and he is. And, um, you know, that didn't surprise me at all. And, and you know, the uh, Brian Fuller who did Hannibal is also a gay man. And I just wonder if there's something about that sensibility that, that comes through very clearly in both of these shows. Yeah, I think, you know, Logan and Fuller both, I think they're so empathetic towards outsiders. You know, and I think that's something that, you know, uh, Will Graham, Hannibal Lecter, Vanessa Ives, uh, Lily, Dorian, they're all lonely, estranged characters. But then adding this element of over-the-top theatrics to it, you know, really is what pushes it over, like this visual style as well, to get across loneliness. And it's really a show about outsiders, people who don't fit in, and they come up found families and you know murder husbands and <laughs> you know wolf guardians things like that you know uh, it really is relatable you know it's it's a warped kind of family but they're all families on their show yeah well i mentioned to angela you had this article penny dreadful might be blood drenched but it ain't horror yeah. And you said a little bit about this earlier, but I was just wonder if you could expand on that. Like, in what sense is this not horror? I mean, I think if it's, it's horror because it has bloody scenes, but I don't think that its purpose is not to scare you. I mean, I think it is, it is gothic romance, right? It is this idea that, you know, it's dark and twisted and, you know, kind of works on you in that way, but it's not, it's not meant to frighten in the traditional sense that I think horror does. And, you know, like the, you know, gothic romantic novels of, you know, like the 18th century, you know, it really just sort of brought through this, this idea of the, the sort of romance and darkness and romance that's involved in, um, in kind of living in, on the other side. Um, and so there was, there was just a lot of that that I think came through in Petty Dreadful that, you know, bookworms really probably appreciated. Um, and, uh, and, uh, that's, you know, it was such an interesting thing and wonderful thing to see on the screen. Right. Well, say a little bit more about that. Cause you, you wrote this article too, about the literary influences on Penny Dreadful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean the, I think the, the basic texts I think have been, um, you know, Frankenstein, obviously picture of Dorian Gray, uh, Dracula. Um, and then this season they brought in just a touch of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Actually, I'd be curious what the panel thought too about like, cause we talked about the, um, the, the sort of unanswered questions. I felt like they kind of brought that in this season and then didn't do a whole lot with it. Um, but there was, so, you know, that was another one of the influences. And then when I interviewed John Logan, I had asked him about, um, the book Carmilla, which is a little more obscure, but is this sort of lesbian vampire tale from, I think, 1872. Um, and, you know, he was sort of surprised when I brought that up because it was, uh, you know, it's a little bit more obscure of an influence, but, um, and the, that was something that he felt very strongly about when he was doing the whole, uh, Lily storyline this year because she brought in Justine, that woman that, um, her and Dorian 
found at the very beginning of the season, I think maybe in episode two. Um, and she kind of became an acolyte of Lily's and they sort of formed this intense female friendship that, you know, became the heart and soul of the show. And that was one of the things that, um, that Logan had kind of extrapolated from, from Carmilla. Um, so yeah, those, I think those have been the, the main ones. There are other, obviously there are other sort of literary influences throughout the, throughout the three seasons, but those have been the, I think the biggest ones. Well, I agree with you with the Dr. Jekyll story is, is one of the things where it's very, very difficult to believe that that was what they had in mind to wrap right. it up like that. And I actually saw in an interview that he had said that he originally had wanted the character to be Dr. Moreau uh -huh. on the island of Dr. Moreau, but they couldn't get the rights to that. So they ended up going with Dr. Jekyll instead. Well, you know, and I thought Dr. Jekyll, if anything, with the way season three ended, if they did sort of want to reboot it, you know, like post the Dracula arc for the fourth season that that would have been where it would have gone. You know, like that, it seemed like that was maybe an unintentionally unanswered question. Um, and so I was surprised, you know, again, when they, when it was announced that it was canceled, I was, I thought, sure, if it was going to continue, that that would be sort of the window into the next, you know, the next sort of segment um, of the show. Yeah. I mean, so Christy, what did you think of these, these literary influences? Were you familiar with them or what did you think of how they were used? I was, and, and I was familiar with them, and it's what drew me to the show to begin with. Um, and this was one of those things where as soon as I learned that it existed, it just warmed my gothy little heart. I was all over this thing. Um, I, I had to go back and look at some details, you know. Um, I had to figure out who Mina was, for instance. I had to look that up because I couldn't remember it had been too long. But I knew that I knew, and, and then when they bring in Harker when she gets married later on, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> now that all makes sense. Um, so it felt like for someone who hasn't read these things in a long time and, you know, is not a scholar of them per se, but um, certainly my, uh, my tastes and in influences have, you know, come from that sort of place. Um, I did feel like there were a lot of like Easter eggs for me to find throughout. And that was, that was cool for me just going through the entire, um, three seasons. Um, Jekyll in particular, I thought I was really excited about him as an addition. And I really felt that maybe they were going to go in a direction of redeeming themselves for a very particular sin <laughs> that they had committed in seasons one and two. And that is by, uh, the sin of killing off every minority ca character that they have. Um, I was really hoping that Dr. Jekyll was going to get a longer run and that maybe maybe they'd start to correct that because that was something that really did bother me about the show. Yeah, I, I guess we'll talk about then about the season two finale, um, which is sort of where I, I started feeling like the show went off the rails a little bit for me because I really liked the character of Sembene. Uh, I thought he was really underused throughout the whole show. And then, yeah, when, when he dies in that episode, I was kind of like, did they, did they seriously just have the black guy die first? You know? Yeah. And, and Angelique. Angelique mm -hmm. also. Yep. yep. And it was like, well, you did something right, guys. You put, you put them in, but then you killed them off. No. Yeah. And I, I think I found the season two finale particularly irksome because it just seemed completely illogical for, to me that uh, a, a Sir Malcolm would go into the, like, just charge by himself into the witch castle, and then that Vanessa Ives would do the same thing shortly thereafter. And so then to have such a, like, bizarre, nonsensical course of action lead to the death of this character I really liked, uh, I found very frustrating. 
and to sacrifice himself so that the white person would live. Yeah. I, that, that really, I, I had a moment there where I was like, hmm, guys, I don't know. Right. You know this is a trope, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, it's it's a trope. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. know. That's... I mean, that's what you want to say to them, though. You're like, right. oh, right. Like... yeah, yeah. And, and like, how do they not know that? How do they not know? Um, I think uh, I think Hollywood is still Hollywood and Burbank, I guess, are still trying to catch up to um, a lot of the things that we have learned in, um, you know, prose fiction um, and comics and, you know, literature, I guess. Um, we're, we're sort of not uh, not willing to um, perpetrate those tropes anymore, but it seems like they're still catching up. So. Sir Malcolm makes me all kinds of uncomfortable. When it comes to things like that, you know, particularly in the beginning of this season, because I liked, um, I believe his name was a uh, Sembin. I think it was pronounced like that. And as soon as they show him baking the cake and everything, you're like, oh man, that's it. They're giving him a backstory. It's coming. I know what's going to happen in the finale. And then to open up season three with Sir Malcolm in Africa bemoaning, like, oh, where did everybody go? They're all slaves in the diamond mine. And like, who helped contribute to that? You're terrible. And now you're complaining about it. And like, There's no new places to explore. Oh, let me go to America with, oh, now I've got a new person of color as my sidekick who is also kind of really uncomfortable, like this trope, you know, this right. noble native spirit, Katane, you know, and I wanted to love him so much because I love Wes Studi. He's a fantastic actor, but he never... The character of Katane never got out of that mystical, noble Native American spirit guide, skinwalker. You are all Apache now. It was just very stilted and just so odd. It really did not make me like Sir Malcolm very much at all. And then they show, you know, then we meet Dr. Jekyll, who I think did have a very nuanced, sympathetic backstory you know by making him a person of mixed race and what it did to his mother how he was outcast in both countries i thought they handled that very well you know so it's like two extremes in the same show and in the same season right and and christy you mentioned the angelique character as well do you want to say anything more about that character yeah, I was so thrilled that she was there. I it just it made me so happy that you don't often see um trans people in um mainstream, you know, television um with some notable exceptions of course, but uh, I just I loved her character. I loved her relationship with Dorian. I I thought that was going to go somewhere. I was really excited to keep her around and then, you know, once again they killed her off and i again i just i have to ask how did you guys not know that that wasn't okay right and even aside from it being problematic in that way just from a plot standpoint it seemed very strange to me that 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 character's story didn't seem to have been developed the way that i was expecting it to be or thought it should be yeah it seemed thin and it it seemed um yeah, I, I I don't know what their intention was, um, obviously, but I just felt like that could have gone so far and, and it didn't. Well, it was like she was such an interesting character to introduce because like I think what happens with a lot of period shows, it's like, well, you get very sort of 
you know, white heteronormative cast because they could just be like, well, that's how it was then, you know, and it's like, it was, they kind of did the right thing, you know, by introducing these characters, but then like you said, they, then they killed them off. But it's like, but, but why, but why did you do that? I mean, especially with Angelique. Um, well, actually it could have been for, for any of the, um, any of the folks I think that we've been talking about, but like there was, a, there was a different version of that story where like Angelique and Dorian's storyline came to an end, but then, you know, she just went somewhere else. Like she didn't, you know, there didn't have to be that. It didn't have to fall into that trope of, you know, of killing off, of killing off that character, you know? What did you guys make of Lily's, uh, like deranged feminist revolution storyline? I think gamer gators loved her. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things that I loved about the show the most, just how like madcap kind of over the top, like, oh, my God, let's listen to the Bride of Frankenstein have a fantastic monologue about female agency. You yeah. know, I am on a, a lot of podcasts about Game of Thrones and other shows, and I feel like I'm kind of brought in to talk about the feminist perspective or or how the women are handled. And I think. Penny Dreadful is like legit, like out in the open more than most any other show that's been on TV in a long time about female agency and women and fear of women in power, you know, so I could talk about this stuff and not be like, oh, you're just seeing stuff that isn't there or stuff, you know, why are you always calling out like the feminist things? It's so obvious in Penny Dreadful. I mean, Lily said it all, you know, by uh, when she spoke to Victor and and the creature about like you think you know me like you don't know anything about me you created me you gave me no choice but I'm aware and this is what I'm going to do and you're all going to kneel before me you know I thought it was brilliant because you know when people usually think of the Bride of Frankenstein she hisses and screams she doesn't ever get to speak for herself. Right, and I thought her monologue that when she's uh, you know beseeching Victor for her freedom at the end was incredibly powerful and very very well done. Yes, yeah, I think I legit had like a little tear roll down when she's like begging, "Please don't take her like my daughter away from me by wiping out my memory." You know, I thought that was heartbreaking. Ugh. There was also that great moment um, earlier in the season where she was sitting outside. Um, uh, oh gosh, the girl's name is, the actress's name is Jessica. I can't think of her actual name now. Um, or Justine, when they were sitting outside that cafe and they see the suffragettes walking by and, and, you know, she kind of, Justine asks Lily, you know, like, yeah. do you agree with them? And she's like, no, our enemies are the same, but they seek equality. And Justine's like, well, what are we after? And she's like, well, mastery. You know, there, there's that moment of being like, no, 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 no. Like it, it's that's such that over the top thing that, you know, that she sort of played, I think, so well. At a, at a couple of uh, key moments this season. Well, I mean, getting back then to the literary influences, because speaking of of The Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's Monster, I think most people who haven't read the novel think of the creature as being the Boris Karlov kind of moaning, you know, shambling giant, uh, and not like the, you know, the Shelley quoting soulful uh, creature from the novel. And so... I really liked that they they actually brought the creature from the novel into this uh, into this TV show, which I, th- I think is a lot more interesting. Agreed. I wasn't a huge fan of him for the first two seasons, 
I mean, well, first I really was mad when he killed like the second experiment guy. No, but that was amazing. Oh my God. (laughs) That that was quite an entrance. That was amazing. But it's like, no, Mr. Prometheus or whoever, you were so nice. Uh, Proteus, yeah. And then, oh my God, (laughs) like what happened? I just I thought that was brilliant, brilliant, Teresa. That was one of my favorite. That was probably my favorite moment of the first season because he's, you know, Doctor Frankenstein has created this Proteus, uh, you know, creature who just seems like perfectly nice, and and you're like, wait, this isn't the story. What's going on yeah. here? And then when the original monster just rips him in half, it's like, oh, now I see what's going on here. Oh, yeah, I, was I mean, that was amazing. That. You know, poor Proteus. But yeah, I mean, that was absolutely incredible. Definitely one of the best moments of the first season where the show really subverted and surprised. Um, season two, I was kind of like shut up you're really whiny and entitled you're not owed love nobody is owed love just by mere existing shut up monster go away <laughs> you know but this last season i liked him more when he was starting to recover some memories and he was was visiting his family i thought that was really poignant and done really nicely and i loved him in antarctica too you know seeing how they walked him out of, like, literally walked him out of that situation with the stranded ship and the, the dying people. And, oh, it was really well done. Huh, that seems kind of weird to me because I felt like at the end of season two, he's sailing off to the Arctic. And I was expecting that to really be a major part of the story. And then it was kind of like, ah, screw this. Let's go back to London. It's more interesting yep. there. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice nod to the novel, um, you know, which opens with. Uh, um, Frankenstein pursuing his monster across the Antarctic, the Arctic, the Antarctic, Arctic. I think it's the Arctic, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, snow, ice, cold, desolation. Um, beyond the wall. Yeah, <laughs> beyond the wall, exactly. Um, so it was, it was nice to get that nod. I felt like that was one of those Easter eggs, right? Like, unless you've actually read it, you wouldn't know that that was a thing. Um, but yeah, they, it was short. It was, they brought him back to London where he needed to be because that's where the action was. Um, but I, I looked at it as a, as a cool Easter egg. I mean, Angel, do you have any other sort of favorite moments from seasons one and two? I mean, I, you know, I, I did really enjoy when, um, Vanessa kind of confronted the witches and, you know, the whole like, know your master moment. I feel like, um, you know, like that, that did kind of, you know, that was the stand up and cheer moment. Um, I think from, from that season for me, but, um. And, you know, as much as with the way she was dealt with ultimately was not great, I loved everything that Angelique was in. Um, I think that was mostly in season two. And, you know, there were just so many, so many great moments. I think when they go, they play ping pong, I think at one point. I'm yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Yes. This is fantastic. <laughs> I don't like the, I don't even know if this has anything to do with the plot, but I'm like, <laughs> I just love that these two characters are, you know, having a date and going to play ping pong now. You know, so there was, there was many of those sort of great moments like that. I think one of my favorite surprises from all, well, from season one in particular, um, I really kind of shamefully had not a very high opinion of Josh Hartnett as an actor. I hadn't seen him in very much. I mean, I liked him in Sin City for the 10 minutes he was in it. Could not name many other movies he was in. Uh, the Faculty? He really blew me away. Hmm? The Faculty? Eh, that was so long ago, <laughs> I can't remember it. Um, so yeah, he kind of blew me away with his performance too. I'm like, wow, I'm, God, I'm really liking Josh Hartnett in this. Like, 
he's not the poor man's Ethan Hawke. He's really quite something in this. And, you know, they were so heavily hinting that he was the wolf man. It didn't, like, I think I was a little slow on the draw on that one. I didn't quite get it. Like, didn't get that, that was coming until when it did. And you're like, oh, shit, he's the wolf man. Duh. Wait, how are they, the I, how are they heavily hinting? I, I would, I could see how they were hinting it, but I, I, I don't see how they were heavily hinting it. Well, I mean, you know, with all the, the massacres and like someone's response, I don't know. I just felt like when I watched it, the second time I was like, oh yeah, there were little clues here, like with his blackouts and um, just hints that like, yes, there's something else going on here. He's got another personality. I thought maybe he was like Jack the Ripper. Um, so then when he was a wolf man, you were really surprised. Yeah, the only the only hint really in retrospect to that was that there's the scene where he confronts these three wolves in one of the really early episodes and then they kind of um, leave him alone. Yeah, you know, and then after that, it was, you know, these murders happening around London and something that seemed supernatural was involved with it. And I was like, he's the only one we don't know all that much about, you know, like he doesn't, you know, he's a stranger here, definitely in London. Like there's no one else like back up any of his stories. He's like kind of a question mark. Um, so I don't know. I was very surprised when he turned out to be the wolf man. But then in retrospect, I was like, yeah, I could see it. See, Christy, do you have any other favorite moments you want to mention? Yeah. And Ethan actually is at the center of it. I, I was skeptical about him, too, at the beginning. And um, he won me over. He definitely won me over um, largely because of the relationship with Brona, which is one of my great frustrations, which I hope we'll get back to in a moment. Um but my favorite moment in, I guess that was season one, was Ethan exercising the demon out of nowhere. Like, I, we just rewatched it, and I chills, chills again. And I, I didn't see it coming, and I'm so frustrated that we never found out why he was able to do that. <laughs> right. There's the, like, when did he join the priesthood? At no point are we, you know, is this explained to us? So. Um, but I found that uh, that was just a thrilling moment after everything that Vanessa has been through um, to have him, you know, he's been hanging back this whole time. And it turns out that, you know, he has this this fundamental power that is um, complementary to her. Uh, I don't know if you would call it power, but um, affliction, we'll call it. Um, and. I just, I, again, I was hoping that was going to go somewhere. I was, I was waiting for us to find out where in his background this came from and, and how, I mean, they kept, you know, they kept calling him the, the wolf of God, but, but is that just because he was a wolf man or was there more to it than that? Did he get this power by becoming a werewolf or, or was there something more? Because it felt to me like there was some sort of religious undercurrent going on there that had, to do with something more than just however he became a werewolf. Uh, I don't know. Maybe everyone else got it and I didn't. But No, I, I completely agree with you, Christy, that, that all the stuff with the prophecies and the wolf of God and, you know, Lucifer never really gelled for me in season three. Um, and, uh, and so I guess that leads into some of my frustrations with the, the series finale. 
uh, where I mean this, and this may be one of those things that just as a non-religious person, this this that this resonates for religious people in a way that it doesn't for me. But it, the ending just fell completely flat for me. Um, and I've heard John Logan talk about how you know he sees this as the character's arc to lose her faith in season two and then get it back in season three. Just fell completely flat for me. I don't know how you guys felt about it. Yeah, I was super disappointed in the ending. Um, not so bad a series finale that I can never go back and rewatch the series. Not like, you know, Lost or the last season of Battlestar Galactica or Dexter, where like I wanted to set fire to <laughs> everything about Dexter's finale. But it was like so flat and rushed. And yeah, I thought the ending with her seeing you know seeing the lord and like i see the lord and it did make a little sense in a way like cuz that's what her big doubt was that you know god would never find her again and she was so lost in the darkness like i get it on one level but they could have made it more epic and more dramatic and it just felt way too rushed she was separate from ethan for so long and then to have the wolf of god protect her and then he shoots her. You don't have to be anything special to shoot Vanessa. Like, that was so lame. Like, what? Really? That's it? Just a nice, tasteful little bullet in her side to make her all dramatic and pale, pretty corpse. Oh, it was so lame. Boo. Yeah, and the, the ending, end with a kiss or whatever that line is, I was like, really? Like, Ugh. it turned twilight in like 30 seconds or less all of a sudden, you know? Yeah, there was like, it got a little too, that got a little too mushy, I think, for me at the end. Yeah, I'm rolling my eyes just at the recollection. <laughs> yeah, there, I, I have nothing good to say about the finale. And we just watched it last night. So, uh, no. <laughs> and we sat, <laughs> we sat there. Fresh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we sat there just kind of going, what just happened? Really? We that's, didn't, we didn't that's even it? get to see her hanging with Dracula. Like, we saw her in like her cool black dress for like five minutes. I'm like, what the hell were you doing with Dracula? Where did this miasma come from? And can we get like a little more with that? Like Dracula was nothing. Dracula's like, yeah, I'm just going to hang on the front porch and play cards. And, you know, while she's over in the back room, like staring at a brick wall or something. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Well, right. And both in season three, both Vanessa and Ethan have scenes where they embrace the darkness that I just found comprehensively unpersuasive but they just didn't seem at all like what those characters would do in any way shape or form totally agree yeah yeah actually until you mentioned it um a moment ago i had forgotten that ethan and um vanessa had been lovers um and (laughs) (laughs) because i'm still wondering what the hell happens to to um ethan and brona how did they never ever ever see each other again i know how so did that that arc never come back around? Because that's that was the compelling one to me. I didn't understand why we were uh, the Ethan and Vanessa thing actually never. Yeah, I just zero zero sparks, zero chemistry as far as I can tell. But um, Ethan and Brona slash Lily, they're running in the same circles, but they never see each other again. He never yeah. finds out what happened to the person that he was so desperately in love with all that time. Yeah, I mean, this, like, the Ethan Brona thing was like, yeah, it's inconceivable that we never get any closure on that. 
like even more than we never see Dr. Jekyll hulk out. Like, oh my god, all season. You've got quite a temper there, mister. Oh, you better watch yourself. You'll lose control. And then nothing. Like, oh, okay. Peace out. Bye. (laughs) I really thought they were going in a whole different direction with that. When they first met, I was like, oh, there's more to Victor than we know. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's me. Like, just being, like, too literal about it. But when Jekyll's getting all close up to Victor and they're talking about how they experimented in college, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is an interesting <laughs> angle on on Victor and, and Dr. Jekyll. I, I could go for this. This is interesting. And then that never happened either. And he never even hulked out. I was like, oh, yep. What are you doing? Like, it got canceled too soon. Yep. I thought by the end, like... The creature and Lily, like, they were all going to bring everybody, like, the whole band back together for the finale. No, like, the creature and and Lily just, like, walk off. Dorian's, like, standing in a room for eternity. (laughs) You know, it was just like, but then, weirdly, everyone's in Bedlam in the basement. Like, oh, hey, Victor, sup, come with us. You know, while we go fight Dracula for this woman you vaguely remember from a year ago, maybe. It was just so odd. Well, I mean, speaking of, of how this should have ended, we had I liked this listener uh, comment from Agnes Denny. She says uh, what she would have liked to see is the Catriona character saves Vanessa and they ride off together. I like no. that. <laughs> Can we talk about her for a moment? I, uh, <laughs> what, what was that? Like, again, you cannot tell me that this was supposed to be the final season. You just introduced her, and I don't know who she is. I looked her up. She doesn't seem to be any kind of canon character. Um, insights? I I mean, I thought she had such a great introduction, and, like, the, the couple interactions that she had with Vanessa in those, in those two episodes where they were really clicking. I was like, this is going somewhere. I support this 100%. And then she just sort of, like, came and killed a couple vampires in the end. And then we never know what happens to her after that. You know, she was like this really awesome, you know, superwoman, And then she was just gone. And I was like, wait, but I liked her. Where, where, where did she go? You know, bring her back. She was great. I kind of hated her. <laughs> I thought she was like the poochie of Penny Dreadful. Um, I did like her introduction. You know, I was like, oh, this, you know, researcher into death. And I liked her with Vanessa. But the more she hung out and it's like, oh, she's great at everything. She was such a, like that Mary Sue kind Mm -hmm. of character, I guess, where she learns all these languages and she fights karate and she wears pants and has short hair. And, you know, she doesn't feel any of like the loneliness and isolation that Vanessa does. I mean, I guess we didn't get to know her very well. And then she's showing up in the finale and Ethan and Sir Malcolm are all kind of like making eyes at her. Like, especially Sir Malcolm. It's just like, ugh, gross, dude. Stay away like, from her, You should Sir be Malcolm. looking at Dr. Seward. Like, be age appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it just felt like they were trying so hard. You know, like, look at this cool character. It reminded me of um, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunter. Like, that kind of thing. Like, too anachronistic for me. Was not feeling it. And I did read something saying there they did think about doing a spin-off with Catriona mm-hmm. and Sir Malcolm, perhaps, but ugh, I wouldn't have watched it for very long. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you that she felt out of... She didn't seem to fit the milieu as well as the other characters to me. I thought she was cool. I, I think if they had introduced her abilities and character over a much longer span of episodes, I, th- I think I, it would have worked better for me. But yeah, just, just how suddenly she comes and does all this stuff. Uh, yeah, it, it was another thing that just felt kind of rushed and weird toward the end yeah, of the I show. Yeah, I felt like they needed... I felt like since Ethan and Sir Malcolm were away, they needed to introduce a character by Vanessa who could be like in physical fights, like physically protect Vanessa because Vanessa wasn't a fighter like that. I'm like, Vanessa has her own powers. Like she doesn't need like a ninja fencer lady. I think I'm kind of struck that, you know, uh, I think Teresa and Christy, both said this was their favorite show on TV, I think, if I got that right. And then, uh, Angela, you said that you were um, evangelizing for it and stuff. But then, like, it sounds like you guys have really mixed feelings about the show by the end. Do you just want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, every, every show, you know, no matter no matter what. I'm never going to be 100% satisfied with anything, you know. Um, but I felt like uh, it. it just, it spoke to my sensibilities my creative sensibilities i guess um again warmed my gothy little heart um you know all of the nods to to gothic literature and and again they did so many things right you know they they really did um and it was really only in the last two or three episodes that they lost me um and and i think that was not their fault (laughs) i think they got canceled and whatever they say it wasn't their fault (laughs) you know um this was this was not supposed you know this was not supposed to end right now um i just you cannot convince me that this was supposed to end right now um and uh uh, but yeah i mean of course that they're i think i think as as um writers and creators we're always looking for um the things that we can improve perhaps in our own work and in and in the entertainment we consume. And so yeah, if I'm critical of things like killing off Angelique, um, you know, that's why. Because I would like to see it done better. Um that doesn't mean I didn't love the show and it doesn't mean I didn't love her. I did. That's why I was upset. Um but uh yeah, I again still my favorite show. Now it's gone and I don't know what's gonna replace it. Yeah, I have no idea what could fill like the penny dreadful shaped hole in my heart, which was still healing from Hannibal. Um, yeah, like, like Christy, I was also, you know, teenage goth, like still, you know, inside, still goth, still covered in eyeliner. Um, what I loved about this Penny Dreadful and Orphan Black both had license agreements with Hot Topic. So you could buy <laughs> like scorpion tops and, you know, like little, you know, cheapy knockoff corset kind of things at, and bustles at Hot Topic. And, Teenage me would have gone berserk for this. I'm like, what a perfect thing between that and Orphan Black. Um, how good is that, you know, to be a teen right now loving this kind of stuff? Um, yeah. But yeah, you could love something and have <laughs> problems with it. I've been uh, reviewing Game of Thrones for, God, like six years now. And there's things I love about it. And there's things I will you know, take them to task heavily for, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, Angela, do you want to, do you want to add anything to that? Oh, no. I mean, uh, yeah, I just, uh, it, I feel like anytime a show ends, there's always like that bittersweet period where it was never going to live up to what you wanted it to be. And, um, 
and especially with something like this where the end was a pseudo surprise, I feel like there's always just that that sense of that sense of dread, pardon the pun. Um so like there's there I think that's just where I'm at with it. I will never not, you know, love have loved what, three quarters, five eighths, whatever of this of this show. Um <laughs> And, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, it kind of ended on a, more of a whimper than I wanted it to doesn't, doesn't smear the entire, the entire, uh, show for me. So, you know, I, it's still going to be one of my favorite shows. Um, I am definitely going to also have that, you know, that, that Penny Dreadful sized hole in my heart for a while, which is probably what Penny Dreadful would have wanted for me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I guess, I, I mean, I guess in that regard, it, it ended as, as it should have, but, um, but yeah, it, you know, it's like I said, it's a letdown. But uh, but I will take, I will take many memories. What was the line? Uh, Think of me only when you dance, and then it's like, well, I shall have to dance more often. You know, <laughs> I will dance more often now. Well, I, I mean, we mentioned that the um, ratings for this were never what they kind of needed to be. Do you think that that was inevitable for this show? That it it couldn't have been more popular? just given its nature or do you think that they could have tweaked tweaked some things that would have made it appeal to a larger audience without losing what what you guys liked about it that's a tough question because it had all of that you know penny dreadful itself like even like what it's named after has all that lowest common denominator carrots you know like tits and gore you know you know everybody likes that you know well, most people like that, <laughs> I think, in their entertainment. You know, it's a, it's an easy hook to be like, oh, look, cable, murder, sex, hard R rating. Um, but to make it more accessible, I don't know. Maybe people were turned off by the, the historical nature of it, you know, like the period piece and the literary aspect of it. You know, maybe people are burned out from Game of Thrones or an Outlander. There's all these other historical kind of shows on. And this one was so different. Um, I really, you know, I think if anyone could figure out what would have made them be more popular, there'd be a lot more great television show on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there were so many things that were, I don't know if they were specific to a certain kind of audience, but, you know, when we talk about the Easter eggs for people who have, you know, read, say, Dracula or Picture of Dorian Gray or something like that, you know, that there are those those things where it's like, if it didn't catch on, you know, it'll be catch on for, with that core audience. And if it didn't catch on beyond that after a certain point, like maybe it just never, it never would have. And if it would have tried to appeal more broadly than all of the sort of, you know, original fans who came for those, um, you know, those little Easter eggs and those things that kind of said, I like that thing you like, um, you know, then it maybe would have lost its core, its core fan base in the process. So, you know, it's a, it's a very tough question to answer, I think. Well, Angela, in one of your articles, you quote John Logan, somebody says to him, the show is just too hyper literate. And he says, thank you. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that. I, I think that, I think if you tell him his show is bookish, it's probably the biggest compliment you could ever possibly, possibly give him. I think he also, said something about to the effect of his show will probably somewhere hold a record for the most long phrases of uh, poetry ever recited on a television <laughs> show. You know, like that he's gotten away with reciting more, you know, Wordsworth than, you know, any showrunner in the history of cable. Um, so, you know, yeah, like the, but that's, again, that's sort of a, a specific thing I think that appeals to a, you know, a certain set of us who wore eyeliner in high school, um, <laughs> <laughs> or at least, you know, excessively black eyeliner in high school. 
Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's literate, it's dark, and um, I think the grotesquerie of it is really a turnoff to a lot of people. I think that you know um, when you get, I mean, just just even the opening sequence with the you know the there's dissection going on, and and I think that uh, you know that appeals to people who like Hannibal. Um, <laughs> it's a real turnoff to people who don't. So. Um, and it would, I think. I think it would have lost its heart if it didn't have those um, very specific uh, kind of notes to it. And and it's what drew me to the show, right? I I love the dark and the grotesque. I I love the the demons and the reanimations and the resurrectionists and the you know I'm I'm into all of that. Um, not everybody is. Most of my you know uh, local friends are not. Um, it would I would not be able to get any of them to watch that show. Um, but, uh, you know, where we kind of uh, intellectually and creatively live, um, <laughs> you know, we, we can find, we can find our kind on the internet quite easily. Um, but I don't know that we necessarily are reflective of the population at large. So. <laughs> right. Cause I mean, I would say that when in the first season, I mean, this show is very deliberately paced and I would say when I first started watching it, I really liked that and it felt very artistic and serious in a way that most television doesn't to me. But then by season three, I felt like the, some of the scenes were so long. I was just kind of like, oh, get on with it. And I don't know. I do wonder if they had uh, just tightened up the pacing a little bit, if that might have uh, cast a wider net as far as uh, potential fans. It might have prevented some attrition for sure. I I don't know I don't know about getting more later, but um, yeah I I don't know. I, I I agree. I think it it there were some sort of slogging things that were happening in season two and three, um, but I think that would be more of a matter of losing people than not gaining them at that point because it seems like it would be hard to jump into, wouldn't it? Yeah, I feel that way a lot about most TV nowadays, I think uh, the way people view TV is starting to change because they could binge it on demand whenever they want. You know, like I said, I didn't get into Penny Dreadful until after the first season had aired. And then I spent a really awesome weekend just watching it for hours on end and enjoying it, you know, but I couldn't imagine going into it uh, in season two fresh. It's, you know, we don't watch TV like that anymore. You can always go back and find it on Netflix, find it on demand, streaming on Amazon. So I don't think people expect to come into a second season um, or a third season new. So, yeah, it's, I think it presents a challenge for showrunners with how are they going to grow an audience by word of mouth if they're not getting enough people to actually watch it. Because I think a lot of critics like this show. I don't think they liked it as much as they liked Hannibal. And Hannibal had an even more active fan base on social media. Uh, Penny Dreadful, I really can't say that much about it. I don't know many people who even have Showtime in general, which is going to be really weird for the new Twin Peaks series. Yeah. I guess, and then one other thing I wonder if, you know, might have killed off this show is how expensive it is to produce. I mean, just, I mentioned the sumptuousness of it. I mean, just, you just look at it and it just looks like it costs a lot of money to make. I mean, one scene that jumped out at me in particular is there's the big dance ball in Dorian Gray's mansion where then all the costumes get soaked in blood. And I was like, oh, my God, how much did it cost to 
<laughs> to yeah. have all those costumes and all that fake blood and everything. I don't know. It just looked. I just couldn't believe the the scale of that scene. Yeah, no, it, it it had to have been. I mean, I don't know what the cost benefit analysis is for something like that, but I hear what you're saying. It could have that could have been something that was, you know, definitely when you look at a balance sheet, like, well, is this, you know, like giving us what we want here, you know? All right, cool. So yes, yeah, so we're pretty much out of time now. So I guess uh, any uh, any final thoughts on Penny Dreadful, uh, Teresa? Final thoughts? Anything else you want to say about Penny Dreadful? Uh, yeah, I still. We'll look forward to watching episodes again. Um, it will always hold a special place in my heart, but I think I'll come up with my own alternate kind of head cannons after season two, when we see Vanessa becoming a master of her dark, her inner dark and her soul. Um, you know, so I'll just kind of try to imagine my own story and also where Victor and Dr. Jekyll are murder husbands of a different sort. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wait, actually I forgot to mention something. So um so the Angelique character was played by an actor named Johnny Bochamp. And my girlfriend Stephanie was actually good friends with him growing up and they used to pretend to be witches together. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. amazing. So jealous. And so when I met her, she 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 mentioned she's like, Oh, there was this guy, Johnny Bochamp, I was friends with and he, you know, he moved to another school or something and we lost track of him and I, I and I tried to like Google him. We tried to find him and we couldn't find any what had happened to him. And then it just turned out that he had he had been bullied so badly that he had decided to just uh, you know leave school and you know Aww. go to become an actor. Aww. And so then he just like showed up. He was in uh, uh, the Stonewall movie and there was something else he was into. And yeah, so it was it was you know <laughs> it was pretty interesting to have him show up in this thing that we were watching. Mm. Well, that makes me extra mad about Angelique. Yeah. Likewise. Well, may success be the best revenge for him. Yes. Um, all right, but getting back to our final thoughts. So, uh, Christy, any final thoughts on uh, Penny Dreadful? Yes. Someone, please, please, please bring it back. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like I'm having a firefly moment, guys. This is really not okay. Um, uh, and I guess if no one's going to, then I'm going to go write some Rona and Ethan fanfic. Right. <laughs> I think I smell an anthology brewing. Continue <laughs> on your favorite shows in thinly veiled fan fiction. I like it. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> and then Angela, final thoughts? Um, I mean, I would say, if nothing else, please find another home for Eva Green on cable. Like, I just yes. need, I just need her to be in something that I get to watch every week. It doesn't have to be all season, like all year long. I mean, it can be, you know, a 10 or 12 episode arc, but I feel like she's like one of my actresses that's like always great. And I'm always so happy to see her, but I never see her enough. So like, please get her another HBO show or Cinemax show or Showtime, you know, something like I just, um, if I, if we can't get Penny Dreadful back, at least get me Eva Green back. It, you know, the letter writing campaign starts now. That's, that's what I'm saying about that. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to mention, I mean, man, no one plays Possessed like Ava Green. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. She's yeah. absolutely yeah. terrifying. Her eyes go gaunt. And I, yeah, they just, they're like, there's something expressive about her face and her bone structure that just, she can relay that so well without even thinking about it. And yeah, it's, it's incredible. The way she drops her voice. Yeah. Oh, and you could just tell uh, her whole body language changes completely. So impressive. Yeah. 
All right, so someone make a show about someone who's possessed. We gotta, <laughs> Starring Eva Green. <laughs> Starring Eva Green, yeah. Um, all right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Teresa DeLucci, Christy Yant, and Angela Watercutter. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for letting me join the coven. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Teresa DeLucci, Christy Yant, and Angela Watercutter for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Stuart Barnes, Sora Kin, Andreas Belmont, and Alec, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.